Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, May 27th. I'm Andrew Walworth. It has been a tragic week, and in the wake of Tuesday's school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, the Senate is once again talking about doing something to address gun violence in America. President Biden and former President Donald Trump will both be in Texas in the coming days, Biden to visit with families of the victims of the shooting, and Trump to address the National Rifle Association's annual meeting in Houston. Meanwhile, in Michigan, five Republican contenders for governor have, at least for now, been removed from this August's primary due to fake signatures on their petitions. The GOP is challenging the decision in court, and the verdict may have big implications for the race against incumbent Gretchen Whitmer this fall. And if you feel you are in a one-party district or state where your vote just doesn't count, Sean Trendy is here with some advice about what you can do about it. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics co-founder and president Tom Bevin, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and Sean Trendy, senior elections analyst. So, Carl, you wrote about the school shooting this morning on RCP, um, and you do have some talk in the Senate about passing something to help stop this sort of thing from happening again. But uh, I'm afraid we've seen this movie before. Is it going to be different this time, or is it the same thing once more? Well... There's still are these this bright line between it's partisan now between Republicans and Democrats um, in, on in Congress on Second Amendment issues. But I think there was I think there was budding support in Congress for a so-called a, a red flag law to a national version of that. Many of these states have it. Whether it would have prevented this shooting or not, I don't know. But um, we usually find out in these cases that there were. Uh, numerous red flags um, about these these kids that mental health issues, uh, idealization of murder, um, concerned adults around them, and uh, these red flag laws that would would prevent or slow down the process of people who are in this kind of distress or have or have exhibited alarming behavior from buying firearms or owning them. Uh, it seems to me that that that's the obvious place for some compromise. Um, and I and I think I think we were moving towards that before uh, the second impeachment of Trump, which you know made the battle lines ever more and took a lot of time. Um, I, but that's I think there's going to be movement this time. I know Tom, I'm I'm anticipating Tom telling me I'm being Pollyannish, but um, California, uh, my home state, is which has much tougher gun laws than Texas, and Governor Abbott of Texas and Governor Gavin Newsom of California were exchanging barbs this week. California has tougher laws and it's going to get tougher laws still. There are seven bills in the state legislature in California to make it harder to buy uh, weapons like this. This weapon that this boy bought at 18, you wouldn't be able to buy in California. Well, I started with Carl, Tom, because I wanted to have a little bit more optimism on the first answer this week, but I will now turn to you. (laughs) Doom and gloom. Listen, it is hard to imagine the Senate and the House coming up with something that they could pass on guns. They weren't able to do it after Sandy Hook, um, you know, and the the idea that they might do it five months before a midterm election seems like it makes it even less plausible. Um, and the problem with this movie that we've seen over and over again is – the well is so poisoned. I mean, you have, you know, you have Chuck Schumer yesterday on the floor of the Senate saying that, you know, 
the governor of Texas is a fraud. Republicans, there's no amount of bloodshed. They they won't tolerate this pathetic stunt by Beto O'Rourke interrupting the press conference. Um, I mean, it's just so, it's so partisan and it's mean-spirited. Maybe they'll get something done. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't see it. And you would like, you would like to think that there, you could have someone like the president of the United States sit Republicans and Democrats down in a room and say, okay, what, what do we agree on? Is there anything we agree on? Is there any common ground from which we can work forward, even if it's baby steps, right? To, to do something to show that we can, we can do something to attack this issue. And maybe, you know, Democrats have to give a little on the mental health issue and Republicans have to give a little on, you know, I don't know, red flag laws or the purchasing age, as Carl mentioned, something, right? You, there has to be something, but uh, again, given how dysfunctional our democracy is at the moment, the thin margins in the house and the Senate, uh, I, I remain, Unfortunately, my usual skeptical, cynical self. Sean, you know, Tom mentions uh, the president uh, maybe taking a leadership role, but it seems like he's really consciously taking a back seat here. And uh, he's coming to some criticism uh, from the left on it, um, or at least from gun control advocates. Corrine Jean-Pierre said that we leave the mechanics of this to Senator Schumer. We leave it to the Democratic leadership on how they're going to move forward on this. Is this good for the president? You know, I think it could be a good issue for the president, but it's, it gets back to what Tom said. The, the, the well is just poisoned. Um, neither side trusts the other side and neither side likes the other side. And so it just makes it really tough. You know, President Biden can come out in front of in, in favor of, of red flag laws, and it's just instantly going to polarize uh, the debate. There's also legitimate issues about, you know, so do you just say, hey, I think my neighbor is crazy and they're always automatically banned from buying a gun. Like there, there's legit due process concerns around what is recognized correctly or incorrectly as a, as a constitutional right. At the end of the day, gun control and, you know, or gun safety or whatever is routinely pretty low down on the uh, list of issues that people think is important. At the end of the day, this election is going to be won or lost on inflation, whether we're in a recession, uh, not whether this, you know, some version of this uh, gets passed. Is there any uh, incentive for Republicans to move on this? As Sean says, they've got the winds behind their back. Politico pointed out that uh, in Pennsylvania, both uh, McCormick and Oz ran just weeks ago ads where they were firing not one, but three guns apiece in their ads. So six guns total. I mean, this still works for the base. And uh, you know, wh- why would they want to change at this point? Your point's well taken, Andy. I, the, you know, there was another event in Texas this week, much less tragic. There was a primary election between Henry Cuellar, incumbent, 66-year-old incumbent Democrat, the last <clears throat> pro-life Democrat left in the conference, I think, uh, against a attractive, young, vigorous 29-year-old immigration lawyer, Jessica Cisneros, who once interned in his office. <clears throat> and she um, she decided that she was going to run on abortion. And she she run against Cuellar before, nearly beaten him. And that was going to be the issue that she elevated, the top issue, um, because of the, the draft opinion that, of Sam Alito. Well, that, that race ended in a dead heat. And so here you have an issue, even in a Democratic primary, 
that abortion doesn't move the doesn't move the needle. And 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 that's that's to the point that both Sean and Tom made, which is that you know there are other issues besides gun safety in people's minds that they decide elections on that they haven't that aren't already you know baked into the into the process. So I, so maybe you know maybe Republicans should just you know if they want to win the election just do what they're doing um, impugn Biden's acuity talk about inflation um, just do their thing. But you know, why why do you run for office if you don't want to do something good? This 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 scene is so horrific from Uvalde um, that the the metaphor to me is these cops standing around for forty minutes or more or an hour in their tactical gear, not going in the school, while the parents are, are are urging them to go into the school and threatening to go into the school themselves, and then being arrested some of them for disorderly conduct or handcuffed or just, you know, removed from the scene. Those, the cops standing around, that's our political process. That's the Republicans and the Democrats there. And the emergency is being ignored. And I, if there are enough parents, and in my metaphor, the parents are the voters, independent voters who say, you know, enough of this. I elect these people to do something. I need some problem solvers. I need some people who actually remember who they're supposed to be working for, which is the people. You could start to get action. Will it happen between now and November? Maybe not, but I, it will happen eventually. Well, that's a nice, perhaps, segue to Sean's piece that we were going to talk about, right? Trying to <laughs> trying to moderate the electorate somehow because uh, the current system, and it's not just gerrymandering. I mean, we talk about gerrymandering a lot, and for good reason. But in the Senate, Republicans have gotten more conservative, and the Democrats have gotten more liberal, and there's no gerrymandering going on at the state level. And it's it's a process that's been happening in this country for decades. I think it's gotten worse with you know the advent of social media and all that. And the tribalism has gotten worse. But I'm not sure that independent voters are going to ride to the rescue here in a general election. If the primary system stays the way it is, which which it will, you know, we're going to see Republicans we, we've been talking about are they going to elect some people who just can't get the job done? Is it J.D. Vance, he's probably in good shape in Ohio, but maybe it's Eric Greitens in in Missouri, or or you know who's going to be the one in the cycle who won't, despite these tailwinds that are are blowing for them, uh, will somehow muck it up and and manage to throw away a seat that Republicans probably should and could win. Well, Sean, since Tom introduced it, you, you had an idea for voters, something they could do this week. It's a little different. Tell us what you have in mind. Well, I actually it grows out of something that I did. Uh, in 2016, which is I voted in the Democratic primary for president. Uh, I thought there was a really good chance that Donald Trump was going to lose if he was. And it, either way, it was clear that John Kasich was going to win the Ohio primary. And so it made sense to me, you know, the, the Ohio primary was going to go to John Kasich. The polling was clear on it. Uh, so why would I vote in the Republican primary? Ohio has open voting, you can request a Republican or Democratic ballot. And I knew that if a Democrat were to win, I much preferred Hillary Clinton to Bernie Sanders. So I voted in the Democratic primary. I did the same thing in 2020 because the Republican primary uh, was a, a foregone conclusion. And so the idea is if you're in a race where you're, you're likely going to lose in the general election, um, you should have a say in how you're going to lose. 
and vote in the other party's primary for the more moderate candidate. Um, you know, I, in 2022, I voted in the Republican primary uh, because it was clear that Tim Ryan was going to be the Democratic nominee. And among the Republican uh, contenders, I had some pretty strong preferences on who the GOP nominee would be. So um, we've seen some instances of that. Uh, it seems likely that Democrats voting in the Republican primary saved Raffensperger uh, in Georgia. Uh, in 2014, Democrats voting in the Republican primary are probably the reason that Thad Cochran was the senator rather than Chris McDaniel. Um, and I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. When the primary is, for all intents and purposes, the general election, why wouldn't you have a say, want to have a say in who the, the candidate would be? Andy, can I can I comment on that? Because Sean Sean, Sean has a better experience with that than I do. And he, he I I I did that one time in my life. It was 1978, and I was a young reporter starting out. I hadn't yet I wasn't covering politics, so I I still voted and told people where I was going to vote. And I lived in I was living in California, and I registered as a Republican, so I could vote in the gubernatorial primary for a state legislator named Ken Maddy. And the reason I wanted Ken Maddy is because he was a racetrack guy. I would run into him at Del Mar, and he liked horses. <laughs> He'd been like Tom's grandfather. He'd been active at the track. He, he was a hot walker. He was also a moderate Republican. I really liked him. Uh, the, 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 Jerry Brown was in the Democratic side. He was going to win easily. On the Republican side, the leader was Evel Younger, an attorney general who was too law and order for my taste. Ed Davis, the police chief of Los Angeles, who was also too law and order for my taste. Uh, a young guy, from a mayor from San Diego, Pete Wilson, who I knew. Who had no chance and Ken Maddy. So I registered as a Republican, voted for Maddy. He ran third. I don't think he even got 10% of the vote. So I never tried to do that again. I wasn't as smart as Sean or as savvy. So, and I, but I wasn't covering politics yet either. So Sean, the, the, you have to, you have to pick the one race though, right? I mean, you, you can't vote for one office in one primary and the other in another. You've got to sort of pick which race you care about change parties to vote for that particular race. Is that what you're saying? That's right. And, and uh, you know, this this isn't a cure-all that you can always apply. You have to be selective in the race that you uh, apply it for. And then uh, you had a colorful term, which I won't repeat because I'm trying to keep a G rating on this podcast without much help from Tom or Carl sometimes. But you had rat effing, I guess, is the term. Uh, what is rat effing? And how is that different than what you're suggesting? That's when you vote for the worst candidate in the other party's primary. Because um, you're trying so to screw them. This is, yeah, this is Democrats intervening to make Todd Akin the Republican nominee in Missouri in 2012. And it's, it's, you had Democrats in the Pennsylvania gubernatorial race uh, working to get uh, Mastriano the GOP nomination. And... That's not what I'm talking about here. First, the idea is you're trying to make politics better, not worse, right? You're, you're trying to get the more moderate candidate who emerges in the general election. So this isn't a this isn't a argument for trying to make the other side's nominee worse so that you hope you have a better chance in the general election. It really is a good faith argument that, hey, you want to make politics better, you're going to lose the general, you know, make, make the general nominee more palatable. Uh, to your side. And, and in the process, you bring politics a little bit more towards the center and maybe get some people who actually want to legislate and not just demagogue uh, running your party primaries. Can I ask Sean something, a follow up? To, uh, Andy? Sean, what about people? There's a, I ran into a neighbor of Andy's uh, on the Eastern Shore of Maryland 
who said she was moving, she and her husband were moving to Florida because she said, a place where my vote will count. And I gathered from talking to her that she was a conservative and that they live in this very red state of Maryland. And so she, they were moving. And now that's not the only reason she was moving, but she brought it up pretty. Wait a minute. She lives, we, it's a very blue state. We happen to live in a very red part of Maryland. We, we yeah, Maryland first. That's which right. Is- but she's a conservative, but she brought it up. I mean, I didn't ask her about it. She said, I'll move, I'm moving to a place where my vote will count. Are we seeing more of that, Sean? Are people actually thinking about that when they, especially when COVID, when you can live anywhere you want? Well, you know, there's definitely been sorting, uh, geographic sorting. You, you can look at the, the map of Ohio from 2012, and there's like a patchwork of blue and red and purple all over the state. And then you look at it from 2020, and it's like, five blue dots in the cities and everything else is red. Not all that is moving. Obviously people are starting to vote more like their neighbors, but there, I think, look, if you're, if you're someone who's democratic and you're deciding where to move in Virginia and you're given a choice between moving to Danville or moving to Charlottesville, you know, I I don't think, I don't think it's just like quality of life issues that decide where you vote. You're like, oh, I can move to Charlottesville and it's a cool hip city. And they're, oh, by the way, like everyone votes like I do. And I think Republicans moving to Virginia probably aren't generally looking to move into downtown Arlington, uh, even though, you know, it's more convenient to DC and stuff like that. They're going to move into, well, I don't know where you move in Loudoun County anymore, if you're or, or in Northern Virginia anymore, <laughs> if you're Republican, but you know, you're probably going to look at like our uh, Loudoun County and Prince William. And again, I don't think it's just quality of life issues. You're looking, you're saying, okay, I can get representation and the politics is going to be more amenable to my point of view uh, and so forth. Tom, what do you think? As someone who lives in a very, very liberal environment has lived here for 20 years, you know, sometimes I I think about that as well, like moving to a place that's more moderate, where just every everyone approaches things in a sort of a less uh, progressive mindset, and people like to surround themselves with like minded people. I mean, that's 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 <laughs> that's what you do on social media. That's why we have all these social media bubbles on Facebook and Twitter and the like. So I like Sean's argument um, because I do think there is. It wouldn't be a bad thing if we had more people in the Senate who uh, were more moderate, or even in the House for that matter. I mean, I'm not sure that this will totally be able to reverse all the trends that are going on, but if it makes a difference here or there, it's a laudable argument. Well, Andy, it's why most reformers like op- push the idea of open primaries, don't like closed primaries. Most political reformers that I know, uh, especially, the, I mean, those from the center. I was going to ask, Sean, how many open primaries are there? How many states can you do this in? It's about half the states, uh, and then some other states have same-day registration, so you can you know re-register on election day. But um, you know, I also have to give credit where it's due. I had a co a prime. I was the second author on the piece. Jonathan Robinson, who's a progressive political analyst, is the one who was really, to be honest, the mover and shaker. Um, and I think you know it, this is something that I think has appeal across across the board. Um, because if you're, even if you're very, very progressive, if you're living in a red enclave, like I said, you, if you're going to lose, you want to have a say in how you lose. Well, I think it's an, it's an interesting idea, but let's talk about Michigan for a second. Cause they're in a world of hurt up there. They've got, um, this gubernatorial 
race on the GOP side, there were five Republican candidates that are going to be removed from contention because uh, apparently they have pages and pages of these fake signatures on their petitions. Uh, You need 15,000 signatures to get on the ballot. And uh, according to reports, it looks like there are at least 68,000 fake signatures uh, were included in these petitions for over 10 candidates. Um, Five of them were these uh, governors. Uh, Tom, this is a pretty incredible story. Um, how could something like this happen? And and for those people who uh, are already losing faith in our electoral process, this can't be good news. No, I mean, look, this is this happens all the time in races across the country. I mean, this is not – what's unique about this is that it sort of happened at scale, right? You had like massive numbers of candidates wiped off the ballot. Um, but – Obviously, petitions are requirements. I think in in most states, you've got to get a certain number of, of petition names to get on the ballot. And we've seen time after time where people come up short um, or miss deadlines or whatever. Um, and and certainly there have been cases where you know people have challenged the other person's. You know, you got to go through and make sure all the signatures are right. And the thing is, too, I mean, Sean, you can probably speak more to this if you know more about the story. I mean, oftentimes people, you know, most of the times these are volunteers, but. Oftentimes they have to hire people to go do this, right? And the people are getting paid by the signature. And so there is incentive to just make shit up. Sorry, there goes our G rating. Um, you know, and and so that's why you end up, and that's that was one of the arguments that some of these candidates were making. Like, it's not our fault that these these guys, these canvassers that we hired to do this defrauded us, the candidates, and therefore we shouldn't be held accountable for this. And obviously that argument didn't fly with the with the election board. And so uh, it's a pretty dramatic situation that you've got all these candidates now, particularly at the gubernatorial level, that are that are at least for the moment ineligible. They're going to challenge it in court, obviously. Yeah, Sean, how did this happen? And um, I know that they use professional canvassers. I guess uh, actually, I didn't I didn't think about that before I read this story, but that makes sense. But ultimately, isn't the candidate responsible? And isn't it an argument that if you can't keep your own campaign from committing fraud on this massive level, what kind of, what kind of elected official are you going to be? I mean, you know, it's, it is just part of the system of, of <laughs> you pay people by the signature, you know, you risk that something like this happens and yeah, you have volunteers who go out there, but even they, you know, if they have a tough day, they, they want to see their person, person get on the ballot. So it's like Tom said, this happens all the time. What makes this unique is that it's five candidates, including, you know, someone like James Craig, who I think was probably the GOP's preferred candidate. He's the former police chief, right, of Detroit. Yeah, yeah. African-American uh, former former police chief. So, you know, uh, and the GOP has left with some of it, you know, some of its B-team challengers uh, on the ballot for what they thought see as kind of a prime uh, pickup opportunity. So it's going to be a tough uh, it makes this election more difficult for Republicans, um, no doubt about it. But at a certain point, the law is the law. And uh, this is why you generally go well, well, well beyond what you need to qualify for the ballot, uh, because you know that there's always going to be these fraudulent signatures. And some of it's not even the ballot collector's fault. Like someone says, yeah, I'll sign your petition. And they sign it for Mickey Mouse, uh, you know, or something like that. It's just, just kind of how it goes. It's a it's a lesson that you always want about twice as many signatures as you think you need, um, because you're going to have a lot of them inevitably challenged and and challenged legitimately. Carl, what do you think? Well, I, I want to see you know, more about this being challenged in court, and I want to see more 
why they were thrown out. Um, some of them were fraudulent, some were made up, but were they, the people didn't put in their middle initial and their middle initial is what's on the voter register. You know, th- this was a party line decision at the election board and, and we'll see how it plays out. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to find out what was the nature of, of those alleged fraudulent signatures. Were they as, you know, Sean point out Mickey Mouse things, or were they just, they didn't have the full name, you know, with the junior behind it, as it appears on the, on the voter registrar. I, I don't know. The board uh, was split 2-2, and I guess in a tie, it goes to the... Uh, tie does not go to the runner in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty... So there is a partisan angle on this thing. I did see some of the uh, pages. Uh, they were reprinted in one of the local newspapers. And um, I mean, they do have 68,000 names, I think. So this is not just a couple that, you know, there are whole entire pages that are like filled out exactly the same. And I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem. Right? We'll, we'll see what happens in the challenge. But, um, you know, one thing I just want to circle back to because we didn't talk about it um, just briefly, which is the fact that Donald Trump uh, is going to Texas uh, and he's going to be talking to the um, National Rifle Association today. Kind of odd timing. I mean, I, I, I realize that, they, you know, and they're, they're in Houston, they're about 250 miles away from where this shooting took place. Um, Senator Cruz is going to be speaking there as well. Um, Tom, and I'm just wondering, you know, when you look at the NRA today uh, in this day and age, um, do they still have the clout they once had? And what do you think comes out of this meeting in Houston? I mean, they certainly still have political clout. Are they as powerful as they used to be? I don't think so. And that's why in some ways it's so disingenuous of, of the president when he came out to say, you know, it's time to stand up to the gun lobby. It's the gun lobby. It's the gun lobby. That's a straw man argument. The gun lobby does not rule Congress. I mean, do, do certain politicians like Ted Cruz take money from the NRA and NRA members? Sure, of course. But I think it's a bit of a bogeyman. It's not, uh, you know, the gun lobby was not responsible for this shooting. So Governor Abbott decided to not speak in person, at least. I think he's going to do a video statement. The timing is not great, but you know, what's, what's interesting about this election is you've got this, you've got this overhang on the economy that people are living with every day. And then we're seeing these, these shocks that are being delivered, like, like adrenaline that are pumped in this, you know, on these hot button issues, abortion and now guns and, and it gets everybody stirred up and we have, you know, this kind of frenzy, but at the end of the day, we're still five months away from the election. I'm not sure how to Sean's point, this will subside as it always does, um, and maybe that's a, maybe that's not a good thing, but that's just the way these things work. And and so the bottom line is, if if it's still five dollar gallon gas, eight and a half percent inflation in November, whether Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Greg Abbott spoke at the NRA convention in Houston is going to be irrelevant. Well, Carl, I'll give you the last word. Well, actually, you're not going to have the last word. I have someone special is going to have the last word. Today, but, but. <laughs> we both got. Chipped out of it today, Carl. We both got bumped, Tom. Yeah. I, you know what, uh, Andy? I, I I can't disagree with what Tom said, but I, I just I want to reiterate what I said. Uh, we, we can do better in this country than politics as usual. And we in the media should uh, push people in that direction. Well, I want to thank uh, Sean Trendy, Carl Cannon, and Tom Bevan. We're here Tuesdays and Thursdays. 
Fridays in some form or fashion. So bookmark this podcast, check back often. I'm Andrew Walworth, and this is Memorial Day weekend, the start of summer, but also a day we honor the men and women who died while serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. And I want to leave you with something a little different. I just finished a new documentary series on the Vietnam War. Uh, You can see it on Fox Nation. One of the people I interviewed was Al Santoli, who I first met back in 1982 when I was doing a story on the building of the Vietnam Memorial. Al is a Vietnam veteran. He was wounded three times in action before he was 19 years old. He won a bronze star for valor, three purple hearts. And when he came home, he wrote two best-selling oral histories of the Vietnam War. They're called Everything We Had and To Bear Any Bird. They're still two of the best books on Vietnam you can find. Today he teaches and he heads the Asian American Initiative, which works in the Philippines, helping villages there. He's a terrific uh, humanitarian. Uh, And we talked about many things, but I asked him about coming home after the war uh, when he was quite young. Here's some of what he told me. When American soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen came back from the war, your families were happy to see you by and large. But in terms of general public, in terms of perception, in media and in the academic community, you were being blamed for what happened. The average age of soldiers was 19 years old, I'm sorry, but teenagers don't start international wars. We had to deal with it without a whole lot of outside support, especially those who were draftees were left on their own. Then came the sympathy, which is the other side of contempt which is, oh, we're going to build you a monument. We're going to give you a parade 15 years after the war ended. Excuse me? I think a lot of us are somewhat indignant because we know who we are and we know the people we serve with. And they were good people. But by and large, these are people that would die for each other They would die for their country, and their hearts were good hearts. My heart always goes out to the families, because I think in many ways, those who loved us felt it even more than we did.